Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Uh, It's my privilege to continue our series in Luke. And uh, last week we had Puran, who was here from Nepal, uh, just enlarging our faith and vision for what is happening in the church in Nepal. Um, Probably one of the most faith-building and also kind of soul-destructive things that he said was like, this is how we plant churches in Nepal. We go into a region, we pray for people to be healed, they're healed, and then we plant a church. And I'm like, that's awesome. Let's do that. And one of the things that I've been praying this week is, God, can you give us just a deeper hunger uh, for the kinds of things that maybe we have decided don't happen anymore? Uh, Because when you travel around the world, you see that it does happen. So uh, if you uh, missed that, uh, I would encourage you to uh, check out the podcast It really was very encouraging. Two weeks before that, though, I spoke with regards to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. He's teaching at the temple, and commentators agree that this is the parable that killed Jesus, was when he said that, um, that God was going to take the vineyard away from the tenants that did not give the owner of the vineyard some of the fruit of that. And I spoke about how Jesus used the concept of agriculture with a vineyard and architecture with regards to the cornerstone to help us understand what it's like to build on him as the king. So this is the parable that he has just spoken and we pick up from Luke 20 verse 19. I'm reading out of the Common English Bible. It should be on the screens as well. The legal experts and chief priests wanted to arrest him right then because they knew that he had told this parable against them. Again, remember the parable that he was saying uh, was about the vineyard and the cornerstone. But they feared the people. So the legal experts and chief priests were watching Jesus closely and sent spies to pretend to be sincere. They wanted to trap him in his words so that they can hand him over to the jurisdiction and authority of the governor. They asked him, teacher... We know that you are correct in what you say and teach. You don't show favoritism, but teach God's way as it really is. Does the law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Since Jesus recognized their deception, he said to them, show me a coin. Whose image and inscription does it have on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. They couldn't trap him in his words in front of the people. Astonished by his answer, they were speechless. Father, I want to thank you for the purity and power of your word. I want to thank you that even now your spirit is just enabling us to access the truth and apply this to our lives. I want to pray that you would help me to be faithful to your word. And I want to pray that you would help us to be receptive to what your spirit is saying. Wow. Undercover spies. Uh, one of Karen's favorite genres of movies is spy movies. She loves the James Bond and the Mission Impossible. And uh, right now we're watching Blacklist, which Fallon hates. And, uh, and so just this idea of like someone seeming to be who they're not and trying to figure that out is, uh, is interesting. I'm just looking at the Bible and I'm, I'm saying, wow, um, they sent spies 
to him. They must have had a lot of power, a lot of money. They must have been super insecure and paranoid. Um, and I mean, I must confess, I'm a little paranoid. When I read something like this, it doesn't help my paranoia. Uh, we, we play games as a family. One of the games we play is Catan. And yes, they, they hate it. Val, there's trauma that Fallon needs to work through in there. And, and part of it is because I'm paranoid that when someone doesn't want to trade with me, that they're, they're plotting against me. You know what I mean? Um, and so this kind of scripture doesn't help with my paranoia. I'm, I'm like, see, there's a reason to be paranoid. People are not who they think they all seem to be. Um, not only that, but then there's flattery, right? So they come to him and they say, uh, we know that you are correct in what you teach. And you don't show favoritism, but teach God's way as it really is. It reminds me of the emails that I get that are like, we are so grateful for this. And then I just scroll through to get to the but part, you know, of those things. When my first job, I worked in human resource at Adcock Ingram, a pharmaceutical company, and they, they taught us that, um, that what you've got to do is sandwich a complaint between two compliments. So what you've got to do is you've got to compliment someone on something, and then you give them the complaint or correction, and then you've got to compliment them again. So I am totally paleo when it comes to those things. I don't need the bread on those sides. I'm like, here's the meat, you know, and this is the thing. And um, what they're trying to do is they're trying to flatter Jesus. This cynical flattery is actually what Jesus has both directly and indirectly accused them of. You know, they're staring him down with this double-barrel shotgun of wanting proof so that they can take him to the governor or want to discredit him in front of the very people that they are afraid of. And they thought they had him. They, I mean, I can imagine the meeting around this. this is, that's a great idea. He's stuck. What is he going to say? This tax was something that was costly, it was unfair, and it was repressive. And if he said, yes, you should pay the tax, then he would have been a sellout. He would have basically said that Roman rule is appropriate and that we should accept it and align to it. If he said no, he would have been seen as a revolutionary that was inciting insurrection and they would have taken him to Herod and to Pilate and they were obviously hoping for the second answer. But we look at the coin and Jesus says, show me this coin and what is the inscription on it? And the inscription on it at the time would have been Caesar Tiberius, the son of divine Augustus. That is the image that was placed on that coin. Show me a coin. Whose image and inscription does it have on it? Caesar's, they answered. And he said to them, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. Mic drop, right? That is like a mic drop moment where Jesus just lets them stew in the reality that they thought they had him. Unfortunately, we know that it didn't matter because they lied about this. In Luke 23, when the whole assembly takes Jesus to Pilate, they say this, we found this man misleading our people, opposing the payment of taxes to Caesar. Didn't matter what he was going to say, they were going to have their way. So what is happening here? Jesus is not talking about finances. He's talking about fidelity. 
Yes, he's talking that there are financial implications to what Jesus is saying, but that's not the core issue here with regards to the paying taxes to Caesar. What the Pharisees are saying is they're trying to determine allegiance based on whether you pay taxes or not. Now, what we've got to understand is whatever earthly demands, and this is what Jesus is saying, whatever earthly demands a government is making or earthly kingdoms are making are subservient to the king of kings. That does not mean that those demands are illegitimate. I'll say it again. Whatever claim a government makes on you is subservient to the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean it's illegitimate. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's not illegitimate to pay taxes, but the reason why they wanted to trap Jesus was because they were saying, if you pay taxes, you're recognizing Caesar as God. But Jesus is saying, I can pay taxes to Caesar. I can fulfill my citizens' obligations without believing that he is the God and ruler of all, because this was a prevalent belief at the time that Jesus was ministering and teaching. In fact, there's a section of the Priene inscription, which was written 9 BC, and this was written about Caesar Augustus, and this is what it says about Caesar, and it says this because this is how the Romans wanted people to see Caesar. The most divine Caesar, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things, for when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aspect. Caesar, who being sent to us and to our descendants as Savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. Caesar died. Tiberius died. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus is not threatened by Caesar. Caesar may have built a nation, but Jesus created everything. What Jesus is saying yet again, time and time again through the book of Luke, is it is impossible. The absurdity of trying to live in two kingdoms simultaneously, to have two allegiances, to have two gods. What what he's saying is that ultimately, even though you live in the world, you have to understand that the one who rules you is God, and that is who your primary allegiance is. I became a citizen of the United States 10 years ago. And uh, for us, it was a, a difficult decision um, because as resident aliens, I know they should change that, but as resident aliens, we, we had all the benefits of being citizens other than we didn't have to do jury duty and we weren't allowed to vote. And, um, and so we prayed and, and we, we said, God, what have you called us to? And we felt like, no, I've called you here to this nation. And so for us, it was really just a, a response. And it was a deeply moving uh, moment for me. I didn't expect to be so deeply moved with 5,000 people in the LA Convention Center. And we stood up and we, we had to give an oath. Um, and a lot of people say, call this dual citizenship. It isn't dual citizenship. It's the ability to carry two passports. That's what happens. When you, when you become a citizen of the United States, you become a citizen of the United States. You're no longer a citizen of another country. Listen to this. I hereby declare, and this is what we had to declare, an oath, that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have therefore been a subject of or citizen, 
that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And so this idea of being a dual citizen is what Jesus is actually trying to pull apart. No, you live here under the governance of a human kingdom, but you are citizens of the kingdom of God. That is your primary allegiance. Because when the two conflict, you have to make a choice. The reason why I can't be a citizen of the United States and I can't be a citizen of Greece is because if the two decide to fight, it would be a short fight. I mean, the United States might buy Greece, who knows? You know what I mean? But if that were to happen, I would have to make a choice. When those two governments come into conflict, I would have to make a choice. And so this is what is happening here. If there is a conflict, the choice for a follower of the kingdom of God is to submit and to serve the one in whose image we are made. And so this morning is not about paying taxes, but it's about whose image we are made in. Just like the face of Tiberius was stamped on that coin, the image of God is stamped on the soul of every single human being. We are made in his image. We are marked by him, designed by him to serve his purposes. And just like that coin represents something, we represent something as image bearers of God. Just like that coin is a poor image, it still is an image. So whose image do we bear? What does that even mean? The Latin word for the image of God is imago Dei. It means God's image that has been placed on all human beings. In Genesis, God says, let us make man in our image. And the Hebrew word for image is much more than a physical resemblance. It means that, our, that, that we as humans are to embody and express the very essence of God. So if we're made in the image of God, and if our decisions with regards to the kingdoms that we find ourselves in conflict with, what, what does it mean? Well, I think the first thing is that we need to recognize that we have enormous value. This is the most amazing thing for me. Even though you are a created being, you are closer to God than you are to creation. I just want that to kind of sink in in your mind. There is a massive difference between you and everything else that God created. Psalm 8 verse 3 says this, When I look up at your skies, you think of the most beautiful place you've ever been and what your fingers have made, the moon and the stars that you set firmly in place. What are human beings that you think about them? Or what is man that you are mindful of him? What are human beings that you pay attention to them? You've made them only slightly less than divine or a little lower than the angels. And you've crowned them with glory and grandeur. You've let them rule over your handiwork, putting everything under their feet. One of the, the things that we need to allow to sink into our souls is that I am made in the image of God. I carry the Imago Dei in, in me. Michaela was saying this morning at the prayer meeting that she's just amazed at the things that God has made and she sees them with new eyes as, as Kingston kind of sees dirt and is amazed by dirt. But, but let me say this, the pinnacle of God's creation was not Table Mountain, which I think is one of the most beautiful places in the world. You are the pinnacle of God's creation. 
When God created, he said, it is good. When God created a man, he said, it is very good. And so if you want to see the pinnacle of God's creation, you look to your left and to your right. You want to see something made with a beauty and a stamp of the divine? You look to your left, you look to your right. Karen and I were in uh, Hollywood, we went to watch Hamilton, and, um, and even though I practiced, I'm so glad you enjoyed that. Um, I, actually, I actually enjoyed it, you know. But we got, a, uh, uh, we, we got a, a seat at the window at a restaurant that was on Hollywood Boulevard, and, and we just watched people go by. And, and I said to Karen, it's amazing that when we go to try and find God, we go to these solitary places like this deserted beach or this jungle or the mountains. And actually, the pinnacle of God's creation is right here walking outside. Weird God's creation, you know. We could see people from the Midwest, clearly. We could, we could see people that belonged in Hollywood. We could see people that we were a little confused as to where they came from. But the reality is, is as we watched that, I had this revelation that, that God's story began in a garden, but it ends in a city. And, and, and most of us want to get out of any contact with people because we want to be in connection with God. And God is saying, the thing that images me the most is a human being. And that's how you connect in a deeper way. I must say that, that for me, I, I, uh, I struggle with this idea of seeing God in people when their behavior or faith doesn't line up with my behavior or, or my faith. But the heart of mercy and justice is being able to see the Imago Day in everyone. We don't have to agree with their choices or their beliefs or actions. In fact, we may have to be opposed to some of those because they counter the gospel. But what we've got to ask God for is the ability to try and see the Imago Day in someone, even though it may be camouflaged or flawed. How many of you know who John Calvin was? John Calvin was a guy who uh, developed the system of theology. One of the things that he developed was a thing called total depravity, where he says that man is completely depraved with the inability to save himself. But this is what John Calvin says about human beings. We are to reflect on the wicked. We are not, sorry. This is like uh, the slide when Neil was preaching that Jesus loved money, right? <laughs> not his fault. We are not to reflect on the wickedness of men, but to look to the image of God in them, an image which, covering and obliterating their faults, an image which, by its beauty and dignity, should allure us to love and embrace them. The greatest atrocities in the world have been perpetrated because people either have the inability or refusal to view other human beings from a different race, national identity, or political belief as image bearers of God. Slavery, apartheid, the Cambodian killing fields, Rwandan genocide, the Holocaust. Now think about that. Every one of those was perpetrated by an image bearer of God on another image of bearer of God because they refused or were unable to see the Imago Dei, the image of God, the divine in every single human being. I, I just was re-watching some of the, the stuff in Rwanda when it happened. And one of the words that was used about Tutsis was that they were cockroaches. 
And so this idea would developed among the Hutus is basically when you're killing a Tutsi, you are just exterminating a cockroach. So it was very clever. Because what happened is you take away this idea of this royal image bearer of God and you bring it down to a cockroach. And it makes it easy for people to kill each other. Now my guess is that a lot of people in this room are not wanting to kill other people because they, they don't, I hope, um, people in this room don't want to kill other people because they don't agree with you or they don't believe the same things with you or they actually are believing destructive and participating in destructive things. For me, when I looked at this and when I was asking God to change my heart, it's not the thing of hatred that I need to deal with. Me, Nick, it's the thing of mockery. I mean, I was really challenged. Karen challenged me. It's like, yep, Midwest. She's like, why do you have to point it out? Why, why can't you just be gracious? Just, just, let him wear his, just let him wear his socks and his cap and tuck in his polo shirt. Just let him do that. You know what I mean? You know? And, and so for me, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, God, how does this image bearing apply in the way in which you've called me to live? If I understand that I have enormous value, then, then the reality is, is that am I looking for that enormous value in every single human being I come into contact with, even and especially those who frustrate me. Secondly, if we're made in the image of God, and if we're to give to God what is God's, then we need to understand that we were designed for intimate relationship. The most amazing thing in Genesis is God made these amazing animals right? Giraffe. Like, what is up with that? Okay? So God makes these amazing animals, but what does He do in the cool of the day? He calls out to Adam and Eve, and He says, I want to be with you. He calls out to them to walk with them in the cool of the day. As they were created so they could join the, the love that the Trinity was already sharing, they were created with a capacity for intimate fellowship with God. Every single one of us. We are closer to our Creator than we are to creation. We've been created with both the capacity and design for intimate relationship with our, our Maker, our Creator, and with each other. Because as He looked at us, He says, it's not good that man be alone. And that isn't just in the context of marriage. It's not good that man is alone within the context of community and intimate fellowship. We have the ability to see one another, to hear one another, to hug one another. We have the ability to protect one another, to cry with one another, to laugh with one another. Even this morning, there are, there are people that have lost loved ones. There are people that are celebrating things. We have the ability and we are designed to be able to do that for one another. Now, I know that these things may happen regardless of whether you have faith in Jesus I know that there are people in the context of the world that, that actually do have a great sense of value for human beings and do have a great sense of, of desire for intimate relationship. But these things are different when it's motivated out of a love for God and a love for neighbor because it takes the focus off ourselves. Am I pursuing intimate fellowship with Jesus and with his people? Thirdly, if I'm made in the image of God, then I am designed to bring order out of chaos. Now, you may not feel that way. Your life may be pretty chaotic right now. But one of the stamps 
on your life as an image bearer of God is that you were designed to bring order out of chaos. Prior to the fall, when, when God said to Adam and Eve, have dominion, rule over the earth, bring order out of chaos. We are created to be able to create, just like our Father, to connect, to cultivate, to restore. And we see these things in things like medicine. We see them in areas like art. We see it in areas like math. But we also see them not just on the macro scale, we see them on the micro scale. What could be more ordered out of chaos than changing a diaper, right? There's chaos, and now it's changed, there's order. Thing is, we need to do that a lot, right? Changing a diaper, teaching a child, producing a product. This is when we understand that this is part of our design, then our mundane life begins to be elevated because I realize that whatever I am doing, God has called me to bring order out of chaos. And it's a privilege. And this is not OCD stuff like me. Like, I don't have OCD. I have a thing called put it where it belongs. That's not OCD. You know what I mean? It's like, why you got to label me like that? It's pretty clear. Does this belong here? No, put it where it belongs. You know, does this belong here? No, put it where it belongs. You know, not that kind of order, but the order that actually says, you know, being able to design a dress, being able to sit with someone and listen to them and they feel heard, that brings order to their chaotic lives. Do I see my job and my station in life as bringing order out of chaos? And if I'm not, why? Maybe it's because I don't value myself, the image that God has given me. Maybe it's because I don't value those around me. Or maybe it is because I'm not doing what I was designed to do. And I need to ask God for some vision and direction in those areas. And finally, we were designed to bring glory to our Creator. Now, I've said the previous three are possible even if you're not a Christ follower, even if you're not in intimate relationship with God. We know that there are many people that make no claim about faith in Jesus Christ that have made major advances in the area of bringing order out of chaos. But the reality is this. If we understand that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, then the more joyful we are and the more we flourish, the more God is glorified. So one of the major differences between an image bearer of God, anybody that is created, and someone that has submitted their life to Jesus is this. The marker of our lives should be a sense of flourishing and joy that brings glory to our Creator. It's like, how can you be happy being a checkout person? Well, because my identity is not wrapped up in the fact that I'm a checkout person. My identity is wrapped up in the fact that I have enormous value, that in some way I'm bringing order out of chaos. And in my joy, the name of Jesus is being glorified. That's why I can deal with that. Is my chief desire to make much of Jesus and enjoy Him forever? The reality is, is all of our image-bearing faculties as human beings, if you, if you don't know Jesus, all of your image-bearing faculties are on power-up once you know Jesus, because the Spirit of God is in you, enabling you to do those things to a much greater degree for the glory of Jesus. The most profound image of God that we know is obviously found in the person of Jesus. 
Now, Paul, talking to, to the Colossians, says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So it means that Jesus is the image of God in the sense that in this, we, we share that with Him, yet He was also responsible in the Trinity for the creation of all things. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Now, in, in, in Christian thought and theology, sometimes we think like this about the Trinity. God the Father was there, and He was angry and mad. Um, and then Jesus arrived on the scene, and He was a little chilled. And then when Jesus left, the Holy Spirit came, and somehow we have this mystical connection now with God and the Son through the Spirit. No, in the beginning, what, what does it say in Genesis? Let us make man in our image. What does Colossians tell us? That Jesus was there in the beginning. The Spirit was there because the Spirit hovered over the earth that was void. The Trinity was there in the beginning of creation. Well, what is the saying now is that as Jesus came and walked on this earth, He gave us something to look at, not physically, but He gave us something to look at, is in this is how an image bearer of God operates with kindness, with love, with power, with truth, with grace. If you want to understand what we had in mind in the beginning of what humanity looks like, this is what humanity looks like in Jesus. But not only that, the ultimate sacrifice was paid for by Jesus. He is before all things, and in Him all things consist and hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. This morning, Sean was talking about the the reality that we, our heads don't need to say, now Nick, go and turn this page. We, we respond automatically to what our brain is telling us time and time and time again. And we know that there's something really wrong when our bodies don't connect with our heads. What the Scripture is telling us is that the way we engage with this world is we understand that He, Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that Every, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, the greatest act of bringing order out of chaos seemed to be a pretty chaotic event. So the crucifixion, the brutality and pain and injustice of the crucifixion that seemed to be chaotic was what brought order for us. The chaos that sin, Satan, and death caused was brought into order by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for his children. We can only effectively image our creator when we live in submission to Jesus Christ. Uh, if, you, if you're a seeker, you have that stamp of God on you. If you're a seeker, you have the ability to connect with other human beings. If you're a seeker, the thing that you need to live in submission to Jesus is to say, by faith I accept that my sin, that my shame, that my pain has been purchased by Jesus Christ and I can live in that freedom and the purpose of my life now becomes to live and flourish in joys that are bring glory to God, my Savior. Colossians 2 verse 12 says this, once I've been buried with him in baptism, and Steph talked about baptism, in which you were also raised through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made, to, uh, sorry, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So there was a debt that we needed to pay. As image bearers of God, we know that it is that our image is broken that needed to be repaid, and the crucifixion brought order to that because it reclaimed us as children of God. We have enormous value. We are designed for relationship. We have been made to bring order out of chaos, and we have been designed to bring glory to our Creator. However, we are in process, and we know that we aren't perfect. This divineness, this image is shaded. It's broken. It's frayed because we still live in a world that is ruled by sin because of the fall of man. We, we still are waiting for Jesus to come and reclaim us so that we can be the fullest example of what it means to be glorified. But in the meantime, we desire as we're united with Christ to be conformed and transformed into His image. So we have this desire, even though we know that that image is broken, we have this desire to become more like Him. Now, this is not us trying to become something we're not. This is us being able to access the power of the Spirit to be able to say, God, I know that you've made me these things. Please, by the power of your Spirit, can you enable me to live in the reality of these things? 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, As I look at the glory of God... I am being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. One of the best ways that we can transform our own lives is not to work on ourselves, but to be beholding to the image of God. To spend time like praising Him. To spend time in His Word and saying, God, I cannot believe that this is who you are. And I cannot believe that you chose to make yourself known to me. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. We don't even need to try. As we behold the glory of the Lord, something happens where we are transformed by the Spirit. In Colossians 3 verse 10, it says, we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. So part of what we do as we say, I, I, I want to live in this world as a good picture of what it means to be a Christ follower. The way that we do that is we put on what He has already given us, which is a robe of righteousness that He gave us freely to cover our sinfulness and shame. Band, you can come up. We have put on the new self, and it is being renewed in knowledge after the Creator. We look at these things, and sometimes, which is not a bad thing, sometimes we say, okay, what, what do I need to do? I want to say this, it, it, it is who do we need to gaze at more intently? The more intently we gaze at Jesus, the more the Spirit of God that is a deposit that He has given us begins to work in us and begins to say, Nick, it might be funny, but actually your mockery is maybe not hate, but are you trying to see the divine image of God in that human being? Am I looking for that in every single human being? Do I understand that whether I like where I am in my job or not, that God has called me to bring order out of chaos? Do I know that I have the Spirit of God resident in me? J. Kim says this, 
Sadly, many Christians today bear the image of their preferred political leader or tribe more proudly and clearly than the image of their father. Their identity is more profoundly shaped by a worldly God than the transcendent God. While many Christians might bear the name of Christ, it isn't clear that they bear His image as their truest source of identity and allegiance. While many Christians might bear the name of Christ, it isn't clear that they bear His image as their truest source of identity and allegiance. My question this morning is, who are you representing? Who are you being shaped by? And if someone examined you, if someone said, show me a coin, whose face would be imprinted on the coin of your soul? We need help to do this. We need Him. We need a greater picture of who Jesus is, and we need that space to allow the Spirit to change us. Let's pray. Spirit of God, I want to pray that you would enable us to see the astounding value of every single image bearer we come into contact with. I pray that you would help us to pursue intimate relationship with you, that for which we were designed, and we would allow that to spill over into genuine constructive relationship with each other. I want to pray that you would equip us to intentionally bring order out of chaos. And my Jesus, I want to pray by your Spirit that you would help us to find our joy in you so that we can bring glory to the one who created us. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.